Well, I'm sure if you like uh, any of us, we've all had the time in our life when we ask the question, or we may have made a statement, that's not fair. In fact, we did a uh, study earlier in the book of Job with exactly that title, and my wife came up with graphics of different pictures of people in angry, kind of rebellious positions with their faces like this, scrunched a little bit, and the lips scrunched a little bit. That's not fair. And I'm sure you've probably said that before, maybe to your parents, maybe up into the heavens. And especially in, things, uh, in light of things that have been going on in our culture, uh, people inside and outside the church may make those statements. Uh, wondering about God's justice, they might say it this way, that's not right or that's not fair. And whenever that happens, of course, we're appealing to a standard, right? We, there's something within us that believes that there should be a standard of fairness and justice. And there is a moral argument for the existence of God that leaps from that platform. If you've ever studied the arguments for the existence of God, one of them is a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, a sense that something is actually fair and something is actually unfair. But where would one find that kind of standard? What do we measure fairness and rightness up against? Is it against my neighbor's opinions? Is it against you know, uh, some various worldviews? How do I navigate what's good and right and true? What is my standard? Is there an objective standard by which I could measure something and say, that's just wrong, or I don't understand that, or that's not fair? And tonight we're going to delve into questions like that as Elihu uh, speaks to Job's specific situation. Elihu's response is that God is the standard of what is true and just and right, and that God's holy, holiness must be defended. Perhaps, says one writer, he is also fearful for Job, that Job is inviting God's final judgment because Job continues to push and question God. Now, Elihu's words will lay some groundwork for Job's response to God in chapters 38 and following. And Job is going to hear some words of truth tonight. And then there's, there's also going to be some words that maybe are up for a little bit of debate in terms of how much Elihu really understands what's going on. The chapter opens in 34.1 of Job. Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men. He may be addressing more than just Job and the comforters. He may be addressing a wider group of elders. Some believe that Elihu is at the city gate. And in the ancient world, the city gate was a place that you would even you know, discuss decisions. And you could call it, it could be an open court. But it also could be the court of public opinion. And so if an idea was being debated or if people were looking at Job's life and trying to consider why it was the way it was, the, the public square or the city gate was a place where the wise elders of the town discussed such things. And some writers that believe, believe that what Elihu is doing is, is he inviting a wider audience to be a sort of jury. Uh, those of you who follow the law or maybe you enjoy a good law show on television know how this works. And people, you know, there are certain... Uh, approaches to picking a jury and convincing a jury and making arguments to a jury. And ultimately, that's what Elihu is doing. He's putting this 
before a group who he calls you wise men. It could be the elders of this particular area. He says, hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. Now, I wonder, at the outset of this message, how many of you would consider yourselves wise? And what does it mean to be wise? And how many wise people do you know? Now, the Bible talks about the pursuit of wisdom is one of the most important things that you can do in your life. In all you're getting, you are to acquire wisdom. And wisdom is really to know God, who he is, and to know his ways. But it's more than just knowledge. Wisdom is what? Wisdom is living out what you know. You could have a bunch of facts about a bunch of things, but if you don't put feet to those facts, you're not wise. You might be knowledgeable, but you're not wise. And so you could have a whole host of learning that you've uh, you know, gleaned over the years, but putting feet to that is what makes you wise. Now, I think if I were to ask each of you tonight, are you wise, you'd probably qualify that by saying, I'm trying to grow in wisdom. That's a good place to be, to try to pursue wisdom and learn what it means to please the Lord. Proverbs 8, 32 through 36 says, Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Wisdom is being personified or given personality here. Heed instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, says wisdom, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life, says wisdom, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. That's Proverbs 8, 32 through 36. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. No doubt what you listen to, what you expose yourself to, who you walk with, where you try to dip into reservoirs of so-called wisdom is who you're going to be. The old saying is garbage in, garbage out, but if you take good things in, good things are bound to come out. And so as you sit under the teaching of the Word of God, week in and week out, you open your Bible in devotional times, you listen to the Word of God, you read the Word of God, you meditate upon God's Word. Psalm 1 says this is what you'll be like. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in its season. And whatever you do, you will prosper. Isn't that what we all want? And that's the way of the wise. The wicked are not so, says the writer of Psalm 1. They're like chaff. They blow around like the wind. And so, in this particular uh, context, we have Elihu trying to speak wisdom. And he says, listen, open your ears to wisdom. Listen up. A big part of gleaning wisdom is being open to wisdom. That seems to be without saying, but some people are just closed to hearing anybody else speak into their life. Or you have some people who are closed to the Bible. You can't open the Bible in their presence. They want to close it. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody before and it's almost like they're afraid of the physical book of the Bible? Don't get that near me, it'll burn! <laughs> and you're like, wow. Some people are like that. 
They just don't want to hear it. They don't want to go there. They'll do anything. They'll turn up the radio just loud enough not to hear that still small voice and definitely not to hear the voice of a preacher. Some of you were there before. And now all you do is listen to preaching. And you say, what's happened to me? I've become that person carrying that family Bible in my neighborhood. What happened? I never thought I'd be that person. And now some of you can't get enough of it. Because what you've found is a reservoir of wisdom from God. There's enough talking heads trying to tell us what life is all about. How about we listen to God? Well, Elihu says, it's time. It's time for you to listen. For the ear, verse 3, tests words and as the palate tastes food. And some of you are pretty good at food tasting, right? And, you know, when we're younger, we might, you know, endeavor to try something new and you might take a little bit on the tip of your tongue. And some of your relatives said, it tastes like chicken. And it was probably like a mushroom or something like that. And you're like, no, it doesn't. You're spitting it out, right? And, and here the image is, you know, sometimes when we're tasting something new, we give it a little, I love the sample cups at the yogurt place. I, when I walk in, I immediately ask what my limit is for the evening. Can I get 17 of the, <laughs> and then you don't, you don't order any yogurt. You just, you know, you're good anyway. <laughs> I don't do that. But the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Illustration. Let us choose, NIV, let us discern for ourselves what is right. This is the major theme, what is right, what is just of this chapter. Let us know or learn, NIV, among ourselves what is good. How can you learn what is good unless you test it? Unless you have an objective standard by which you measure it. How do you know what's good? How do your friends know what's good and right? When Greg Kokel was here on that Sunday night, he was telling us how to use questions in conversations with unbelievers. And one of the questions that Greg gave us on that evening was to ask a person if they've landed on a certain worldview or perspective on spiritual life, to ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? And Greg says that he's used that in many contexts. And when he says, how did you come to that conclusion? Oftentimes, what did he say? It's the, the sounds of silence. Because people oftentimes have come to conclusions because that's all they know or that's all they've heard. And so we have to be those who will taste and see. We uh, can picture here somebody sampling food to see what it tastes like, to see if it's good and right and true. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine everything carefully. Look, if you're going to put something inside yourself, some of you have uh, made a commitment to healthier eating this new year, Right? And I've heard coaches say about professional athletes, uh, such and so athlete is very careful about what they put into their body. Why? Because they want to be at the peak of their game, right? They're very careful that they eat right and exercise. How much more in your mind 
How much more the things that you put into your soul? It matters. In fact, the, the Bible compares itself to spiritual food, right? Uh, nourishing uh, the soul. And of course, the reverse is true. There are certainly some things that are just neutral in life. They're not going to hurt you or help you. But there are other things that are downright hurtful. And so the Christian is always trying to taste and see and trying to understand how to please the Lord. God's word can be sweet, Psalm 119, 103, but there's an also an implication that it can be bitter, Revelation 10, 9, and 10. As we grow, our job is not just to see what we like, but try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So I might put it this way, let's try to learn what God likes. Amen? Because that's what's just and right and true. Sometimes my taste buds could be a little bit off but I want to compare it to what God says. And Elihu says, Job has said, I am righteous, now he's quoting Job, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? NIV, am I considered a liar? Middle of verse six. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Now in verses five and six, as Elihu did in the previous chapter or two, he is summarizing what Job has been saying because he believes it's his job to debunk Job's view of God. And so he captures what Job has said and captures it accurately. Job feels his wound is incurable, that there's no hope for him. And although he will finally repent of this, at this point, Job believes the primal lie of Satan, I'm quoting another author, that God is not good, but is cruel, a cruel, evil, evil tormentor. The Satan has masqueraded as God and persuaded Job of this. Now, in the early responses of Job to his suffering, he corrected his wife. Should we accept good things, only good things from God, and not, you know, adverse things? But now, Job has gotten to the point where his suffering has overwhelmed him so much so that he believes that God treats him as an enemy. He's painted a picture that God is like uh, an army that's sending troops and barraging him as though he were a city being invaded. He has said in other chapters, like chapter 10, that God never takes his eye off me. It's like he's examining me just to watch me fall or trip up. Job, in his pain and suffering, not for past sins, remember? That was not the issue with Job, but in the midst of his pain, and this is something that Elihu has brought out that's different from the other so-called comforters. He doesn't accuse Job of suffering for past secret sins. Rather, he says Job has sinned in his suffering. Job has erred in the midst of his pain by accusing God falsely because God is not the one doing this to him. Who's doing it? Satan. And remember when Eve was next to the forbidden uh, fruit, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she was there and, this, and Satan came in and said, did God really say, oh, this is what God knows will happen if you eat that? See, the question mark was put over God's goodness. Oh, God's trying to keep back from you. No, you eat that, your eyes will be open and you'll be as God's. You'll be exalted. Isn't that the promise before you take the bite of many things in life? Go ahead. You won't believe the high you'll get from this one. 
and you bite, and at first it's true. Wow. Woo. Seeing things I've never seen before. And then all of a sudden, the poison goes down. And for those of you who have been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, somehow in the midst of the suffering, Job has become convinced that God is doing it. And I will say, God has certainly allowed it. And that's where some of the question marks come in for us. You know, that, this, these are the question marks on the hearts and minds of many in our culture. How could a good God allow that? And that is a question that we do have to wrestle with. And so Elihu says, what man is like Job who drinks up derision, NIV, scorn like water? Tell me, New Living Translation, verse 7, has there ever, ever been a man like Job with his thirst for irreverent talk? Who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? Elihu believes that Job has gulped down scorn like a thirsty desert traveler. And that mockery just flows out of him like a raging river. He, he seems like a man who's listened to enough of the mockers of God that that's all he can regurgitate. That's all that can flow out of him is angst and mockery towards God. And, and listen, if you want to get on internet websites and find out how much angst and mockery against God is out there, oh, you can spend the next couple of years on internet websites who espouse hate towards a God that they don't believe exists. And they want to point out to you all the alleged contradictions in the Bible. And they breathe their venom. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not underselling that when I say to you, it's venom. I'm not understating that. It seems like Job's been hanging around wicked men who just uh, have mocking words towards God. And I will tell you that the company you keep does matter. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. And we have watched uh, people in many different settings, whether it's a, a young person going off into a college context where God is mocked and you're ridiculed if you're a Christian, to maybe a person who gets a group of friends and, and that, those group of friends begin to chirp in their ear, questioning God, questioning this, questioning that. And inevitably, if you don't have enough of a solid foundation, you end up just simply reiterating those ideas. And so we have to be careful. Malachi 2.17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Verse 9 says, for he has said, it profits man nothing. Now Elihu, Elihu is quoting Job's position. It profits man nothing when he is pleased with God or tries to please God. New Living Translation, verse 9. He has even said, I waste time trying to please God. Verse 9. You ever been there before? I'm true, trying to do the right thing here, Lord. Sometimes people become a Christian and they hear the gospel message, and sometimes it's packaged in such a way that, oh, now it's the it's time for the abundant life. Everything's going to be beautiful and perfect in your life. 
and they don't give you the full scope of spiritual warfare and that there's going to be some trials and tribulations and maybe some people that used to hang with you may not want to hang with you anymore. And all of a sudden the person goes, whoa, what did I sign up for here? This is how Job felt, but it certainly wasn't his heart. He was trying to be a sincere and good and godly man, and he was. But he got to a point by asking this question. I try to do the right thing, and I end up suffering for it. And he spent whole previous chapters saying, it seems like the wicked are just having a a grand old time. They're doing great. They're abusing their bodies. They're shaking their fist at God, and nothing happens to them. And here I am. Trying to be a godly man in my culture, in my family, in my company, on my street. And what do I get for it? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard, right? Therefore, Elihu now responds to Job's position. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. That just can't happen. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. The negative and the positive. The Almighty is good. He would never act wickedly. He can do no wrong. This is unthinkable for Elihu. Yet he also states that Job is suffering just like everybody who suffers for their actions. And while it is true that God judges justly, That is not why Job is suffering. He hasn't done something evil against God. God is doing something else. And I hope you've been with us as we've delved into those uh, possibilities. Psalm 37, 28 and 29 says, The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Abraham said to the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Genesis 18, 25. The answer to that is yes, yes, and triple yes. God is the standard of what is right. He is by definition just. He is the embodiment of justice. He is the embodiment of love. He is the embodiment of truth. If God is unjust, what are we going to do? If the standard of justice is no longer just, by what do we measure our so-called justice? That's why Elihu is saying this is unthinkable. Job, you can't say things like this. God is always just. And Proverbs 12, 14, 19, 17, and 24, 12 talk about God repaying for what people do. And though this is generally true because Proverbs are general truth statements, it is not always the case that you suffer because you did something wrong. The ultimate example of that is Jesus. And Job is another example of an innocent sufferer. And you may be suffering. And if you're going through some suffering right now, your suffering is not necessarily connected to something you did wrong. 
in John 9. Tomorrow morning at the men's study at Honey's at 9 a.m., we're teaching John 9. In John 9, the disciples walk by. A blind man's there. They say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither him nor his parents sinned, but this has happened that the works of God may be manifested in that man. Do I understand that? Not completely. Do I know that Jesus is going to heal the man in John 9? Yes, because I've read it. Do I know that the man's going to say, once I was blind, but now I see? Yes. But the days leading up to that healing, that man still was in that condition, and this comes to a matter of timing. God's timing in God's uh, sovereign plan. Let me just put this to you so that you can at least hang your hat on this. God is just. He is not, nor will he ever be unfair, so that any situation that we think appears unjust or we don't get it, it's because we are lacking the information, not because God is unjust. Are you with me? See, that's our worldview as Christians. I'm lacking all the angles. I, I don't have all the information. I don't understand. I don't understand why God allows certain things. I don't understand how all these uh, you know, corners and streets move. But I know this. God is good. And you might say, well, then, well, Pastor Michael, but how do you really know that? You say that, but how do you really know that? Now, I could quote you chapter and verse, and I'm going to give you a few in a minute. But do you know how I know that God is good and just? I look at the cross. And there, love and justice intersect at the God-man, the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. There is justice on the cross dying in my place. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 So I know enough about who God is to try to at least have a file of I have to wait for more information on this and that because I don't understand. But here's what I do know. God is good and God is just. He is the standard. He is the embodiment. And even he, the God-man, took uh, an injustice, the ultimate injustice at the cross. Surely God will not act wickedly, 12. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Now we would all say, Elihu, amen. You got it right. See, Elihu is, is trying to defend God. This is why he's passionate. He says, who gave, here's a series of rhetorical questions to back up his point. Who gave him, God, authority over the earth? Who has laid on him the whole world? You might put it this way. Who gave God the right to rule? Uh, no one. <laughs> because before there was a world, there was God. God rules because he is the ruler, because he is sovereign, because he is just. I want to show you a, a passage that emphasizes this. Deuteronomy 32. Let's turn there together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the fifth book, 32. Here's the words of Moses. 
32.1, Moses got a close-up glimpse of the glory of God, at least the back parts of his glory. Moses interacted with God as one man speaks to a friend, face-to-face, as it were. Direct interactions with the Most High God, direct interactions with the law of God. He was the deliverer for the people of Israel. He experienced the power of God. He heard God say, proclaim his name and say that he has compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And he delights in compassion. And this is Deuteronomy 32.1. It says, give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. 32.3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are what? They're just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses says God is good. All his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness. There is no injustice in him whatsoever. And so this is what we can know. This is what we can know about God. And there are many things that happen in the world, if you go back to the book of Job, which trouble us. Many of them have to do with choices that man makes. Many of them have to do with the consequences of a broken and fallen world. Some of them are maybe to remind us that this world is under a curse and it will be made new at one point. As God speaks to Job later in chapter 38, he says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? You know, one of God's answers to Job is, you don't have all the information, buddy. Where were you when I spoke the world into existence? Tell me if you know. Tell me how I told the oceans to stop. Tell me how I made the sea creatures so big that man can't even deal with them. Tell me if you know. See, we think we know so much. I've been around for 14 years, Dad. I think I've arrived. Right? Well, how much of the knowledge of the universe do you think you have, child of mine? Where were you when I bought this house and signed that deed with 725 pages? Where were you when I got down on my knees and prayed and consecrated this home to God? Tell me if you know. And if you know, where is your contribution to the mortgage payment? <laughs> Verse 14, Job 34. Now, he's using rhetorical questions. He says, if he should determine to do so, 34, 14, if he should gather to himself, if God should, his spirit, uh, in Hebrew thought, his spirit, it, uh, it includes this idea that God breathed breath into mankind and his breath. If God should determine to do so, all flesh would perish together, man would return to the dust. Here's the New Living Translation. If God were to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease and humanity would turn again to dust. I think it's Daniel 5.23 when Daniel says, I believe it's to Belshazzar, 
in God holds your very life breath in his hand. What if God just said, all breath, return to me now? We all would be going, Bloop. You see, the Bible says that God even holds your life breath in his hand. Whew. How's that for heavy? See, that's why you want God to be consistent in his attributes. <laughs> you don't want him to have a bad day and say, all breath, return to me now. <laughs> God graciously made and holds the world together. If he wanted to, he could, and this is just, he doesn't do it because he's a God of mercy, he could take life from the entire human race in a microsecond. That's our God. And Elihu's saying, how dare you, Job, talk to a being like that and say, I don't think you're fair. But then, the camera pans down to the earth and you say, I've done that for things a lot less than what Job's going through. Oh God, help me. I've had a couple of bad days in questioning some of my theology. Anybody else out there? And here's Job, he's lost his estate, he's lost his children. And Elihu is a voice of reason saying, Job, you, you've got to be careful. I want you to turn to two psalms. All right, so we're looking at Psalm 104. So go a little bit to your right. Psalm 104. His preserving grace gives me breath every day. I don't know if you've ever just taken a moment to thank God for your breath. Thank you that I woke up and could breathe some breaths. 104, Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how many are thy works and wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along in Leviathan, we'll study that later, which thou hast formed to sport in it. They all wait for thee to give them their food in due season. Thou dost give to them, they gather it up. Thou dost open thy hand, they are satisfied with good. Thou dost hide thy face, they are dismayed. Thou dost take away their spirit, notice they expire and return to their dust. Thou dost send forth thy spirit, they are created. Thou dost renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Turn to the very last verse of the Psalter, the book of Psalms is called the Psalter. Psalm 150, verse 6, you all know it. Let everything that has breath... Let's try it one more time. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Brother Bert. How many times a day do you say that, Brother Bert? <laughs> you lost count. <laughs> That's good. Hallelujah. Back to Job. Now, Elihu, I think he's got the attention of the crowd, and he says, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Now, he's addressing, he's going to address Job, and he, that starts in verse 16, 34, 17 of Job. Shall one who hates justice rule? 
or govern, ESV? Will you condemn a righteous mighty one? Now, how could God rule if he hates justice? The, uh, this is a logical impossibility for Elihu, yet one writer says this argument has much, had much more weight in ancient times than today. For the philosophy behind Western democracies requires the separation of the judicial system from the executive branch of government. But in ancient thought, justice and power were believed to be united in the ideal ruler. How could God govern, says Elihu, if he hated justice? It wouldn't work. The world would be chaos. As much as we sometimes think the world is chaotic now, God could not rule and certainly wouldn't rule in the way that we would hope if he wasn't just. And I want to show you a few more psalms and then we're going to have to move quickly. All right, back to the psalm, Psalm 96. Just a little bit to your right. And you're going to see some things about God in his justice and his power and his throne. I'm going to hit some highlights. 96, Psalm 96, verse 4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, 96.4. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens, 96.6. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, 11. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming he is coming to judge the earth. How could we depend on a righteous end times judgment without knowing God is just? He will judge the world in righteousness or rightness and the peoples in faithfulness. Keep reading Psalm 97, 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are what? They are the foundation of his throne. That's who God is. Righteousness and justice kiss in the person of God. They are who he is. They establish, if you will, his throne because it's who he is. He is the godly ruler, the godly king. By the way, the word ruler or to govern in the Hebrew has the sense of a redemption or a mercy. God is the perfect embodiment of justice and mercy. Uh, you could say what is uh, carrying out what is right and just and true and yet so much delights in compassion. That's why we're not consumed. That's why he didn't say, all breath, come back to me. Because <laughs> he could say it every minute of every day and be justified, wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about all that goes on in the planet on a given day in thought, word, and deed. Oh my goodness, and he sees it all. How many times if you were God would you be tempted to say, all breath return to me? Or at least all the breath in this particular zip code. <laughs> Come back now. People, boom, 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 boom. 
Psalm 99, look at verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. See, God's holiness is connected to his justice. He can't do what's wrong or evil because he is holy and good. James 5.11 says, write it down for your notes, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, James 5.11, and you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job 34.18 Who say to a king, worthless one, this is, He's saying this of God to nobles, wicked ones. Jesus said of Herod, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. God shows no partiality, 3419 of Job, to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor. They are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. And at midnight, Elihu continues, people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. Well, is God fair? Does he show partiality to rich people or rulers? Well, if Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven, ask Nebuchadnezzar how God dealt with him. Nebuchadnezzar ended up eating grass for about seven years as an animal, right? Feathers and long nails, right? How about David? David thought that he had pulled one over on everybody until Nathan the prophet came to David and said, you are the man. Well, we could go down the list. There's many, many people, rulers and the like, that God has dealt with. And he's made no bones about their position or their influence or their power. You see where it says at midnight people are shaken and pass away? In a moment they die, verse 20. The writer is not saying that the moment a wicked ruler does something wicked, he dies. But the Bible is saying that in a moment he dies. Sometimes at midnight, the time when you're in bed and feel the most secure and rested. Do you know what time the Passover happened? At midnight. And there wasn't one house in Egypt where someone wasn't dead save the ones that had the blood, and the cry went out, Exodus 12, 29. The Lord is just, but it took a while to reach the goal of judgment. If you're an Israelite, you may have prayed for 80 years for deliverance to come. Where is God? And then at midnight, in a moment of time, all the firstborn in Egypt are dead. See, God has his calendar. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. God's calendar is not mine. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons by which God will do this or that. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, restore the kingdom to Israel. It's not for you to know that. That's why we're called to walk by faith. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, 21. He sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow 
where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Well, maybe God doesn't see some things. No, he sees it all. For he does not need to consider a man further. Job doesn't need his day in court. God has all the facts. The only reason you have a court case is to learn the facts and see who's telling the truth. God doesn't need to be updated. He's already got all the facts. Let me bring my case. One day when I appear before God, me and the big man upstairs, are, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to work some things out. Oh, no, you're not. Because he already knows everything about you. He even knows what you think you're going to squeak out in his presence. You see, he does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. He doesn't need the information. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works, and he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. Essentially, what Elihu is saying to Job and anybody else who will listen, you don't need your day in court, Job. God is up to something, and this is a matter of trust. And that's where it can become very hard when I'm confused especially about something that's happening to me personally. Amen? I mean, let's be honest. We're going through the book of Job because we all got our questions, and this is where we all struggle. You see, whatever is going on with us right now from my notes, what we can know is that God knows and God cares. He loves us. This does not mean that difficulty and pain will disappear. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't but that he is there. Jesus said in the famous Great Commission pa uh, passage, Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always, even to the what? End of the age. But do you know that the 11 of the 12 apostles that were listening to those words were killed and died a martyr's death? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. They heard that. They believed that. Yet 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith, including a historical account of Peter being crucified upside down. So God being with us gives us hope, but it doesn't mean that difficulty always disappears. You see, he strikes them like the wicked in a public place. Because 27, they turned aside from following him, had no regard for any of his ways, so they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. Afflicted. Sometimes we wonder, well, what about people who do all this evil? Well, Elihu's arguing that God will judge them publicly like he did Nebuchadnezzar or even Haman in the book of Esther. They're going to get theirs in the end. But how about when he keeps quiet? Here's Job's other question about God's justice. What about when you pray about something and it feels like God has turned his face away, and all you get is crickets back. Does silence, what does it mean, <laughs> right? Look, if you find the answer to that, would you let me know? But I don't believe that silence means that you should just move forward like gangbusters. Well, he didn't answer, so let's just go for it. <laughs> I think we've got to be careful. Silence could mean wait. It could mean that, you know, I'm doing something that you're not going to see right now. When he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? When he hides his face, 29, who can behold him? That is in regard to both nation and man, what he's doing in allowing a nation, certain nations of the world, or uh, godless rule in verse 30. 
so that godless men should rule? How do some of these dictators rule for decade upon decade and bring snares to their people? And it seems like God doesn't pay attention. What do we do with that? Well, when God seems silent, we need to remember that God is always working. Jesus said that about his father in John 5, 17. He lets individuals and nations go on for a time. In Genesis 15, 16, how many of you remember this verse? The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God says that to Abraham. And you're like, say what? Until you realize that what God is saying is that the Amorites are part of the people in the land of Canaan, one of the Ite people, the Ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and that their iniquity hasn't come to a full state of completion to where God decides that's the time that I'm going to judge them. So he tells Abraham, hey, the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. And what that means is I'm not going to judge them yet because there's a certain amount of sin and they're going to hit the ceiling and when they do, that's when I'm going to judge them and it's not complete yet. Do you get that? Do you know what his ceiling is? I just want it to be high in my particular case. Right? When it's other people, let, let's, let's start taking breath away from zip codes, right? But when it's me, I'm, I'm hoping for a high, one of those really high ceilings in the new houses. Right? When it's them. Eh. You see, God is patient. He's not wishing that any perish, but all what? Come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 9. For has anyone said to God, I've borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore? Now, he's winding down and he's saying, Okay, is anybody here going to repent? And he's speaking specifically, I think, to Job. This is the New American Standard updated version of verse 32. It says, teach me. And I tell you, folks, this just jumped off the page to me. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will not do it again. Elihu, in a moment, I, I think of incredible, profound depth, says, hey, does anyone need to repent? Anybody being chastised and willing to say, yeah, that's me and I won't offend anymore, I'll stop. And I'll also add, oh Lord, teach me what I don't see. Wouldn't it be great if that was our prayer every day? Lord, teach me the things that I don't see. I don't see everything. That's my problem. You do, I don't. So uh, it says, shall he recompense on your terms because you've rejected it? For you must choose and not I, therefore declare what you know. In essence, Elihu's saying, do you think God's just going to roll over and say, okay, you're all right. <laughs> no. He, the ball's been hit to you. It's in your court. It's a summons to make a choice. And then finally, men of understanding will say to me, and a wise man who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge. Remember, he's been making his case potentially at the gate of the city. His words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin, claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. Something's got to be done, Elihu says, and that's why I spoke up in the first place. Remember, he said he was hesitant to speak, but he, had, he just had to speak up. 
And remember how many times it says of Elihu when we first met him, he was angry. His anger was burning. He was angry. And that's one of our problems. We think someone, we finally said, that's enough. You're not talking anymore. Now I'm going to talk. But if we let anger dictate our conclusions, we may be off as well. You see, Elihu is right about a lot of things. But he has judged Job pretty harshly as an onlooker not walking in his moccasins. Oh God, teach me what I do not see. Before I condemn somebody else, help me to think about if I was that man, what might I say to the heavens? And help me to temper anything I might say in a corrective way to that man in the way that I might want to hear it had I lost all ten of my children. Had my houses been crashed down? Had I become the target sites for Satan? Had I lost everything, including my health, and been on the verge of death? See, Elihu's right in a lot of what he says. But God, help us to pray, oh Lord, help me to see what I don't see so that I don't make an unrighteous judgment or I, I don't say to a group of people, this person deserves the worst. I'm going to ask Shane to come up and remind all of us that when people looked at the cross of Jesus Christ, they saw it as the ultimate injustice. But I mentioned to you earlier, it's where love and justice intersect is at the cross of Christ. And that was an injustice, but that injustice ended up being what? Our salvation. So sometimes the things that I don't understand and don't see, God exploits them for his good purposes. And even though I shake my head at tragedies and I don't get a lot of things in this world, I know that God is good, just, loving, holy, exploits things for his eternal purposes, does things according to his will, and shows me how much his love and justice meet together at the person of Christ for my salvation. Amen? Father, thank you for... This time in Job 34, there's a lot to consider here. Uh, we want to just slow our hearts and minds down just for a second because I, f- I feel like in some ways we rush through some majestic uh, stuff here. But, but I know you're going to do your work in our hearts. Whatever you want us to really be considering, meditating upon, help us to do that, Lord. Whatever is not really something you want us to focus on right now, we can put that aside. But how you may be speaking to us, the text that jumped off the page, oh God, help us. Help us to have your heart in all things, to be wise, to know you are just and good, but to know that we lack information much of the time. Help us to be people who are patient with each other, leaning into you in seasons when we don't get it. Help that dear saint who's been holding on through some question marks. Help that person who's not sure they even know you tonight to commit their life to the one who died on the cross, the one who was holy and just and yet took our punishment, pain, took our sin debt at the cross. Help that person to reach out to you and ask you to be their Lord and Savior and King. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for making us in your image, thank you for giving us breath and life and all good things. Help us to be a grateful people. And when we 
are confused, help us to be a people who lean into you even more. In Jesus' name, amen.